Let me invite you to open God's word with me to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah 8, and we'll read the first eight verses of chapter 8. And uh, Zechariah is one of those books that's a little hard to find sometimes. It's the uh, second to last in the Old Testament. And um, again, we'll read chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. So let's give ear to God's word together. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And we'll end our reading there. Well, we know with great certainty the year in which Zechariah began his ministry, and that was the year 520, B.C. That was the second year of King Darius of Persia. And we also know that those were very troubled times for God's people. We know that the people had just returned from exile in Babylon, and when they did return, they found a heap of ruins where their city once stood. And so their situation was bleak. Their future was rather uncertain. But against that very dark background of historically what was taking place here, the Lord here speaks a word of hope and a word of comfort to his people. Here, God speaks of restoring Jerusalem and of blessing his church after a very hard interlude of of exile and chastening. And this word of hope or this this word of assurance is given such memorable expression in verse 5 of our text verse 4 and 5, uh, with the imagery of old men and women sitting with their staffs in the streets, young boys and girls running and laughing and playing. The old and the young represent the blessings of long life and new life, and this would surely have comforted the exiles as they returned home. God was promising them that they once again would have the opportunity to live in peace, and they would be able to grow old once again, and they would know that there was, there was hope for the future whenever they saw children playing in the streets. Well, today the sacrament of baptism has been administered to a covenant child. Very appropriate for us to therefore dwell upon verse 5 of our text in particular, a verse that really tells us that covenant children are a sign of hope and blessing to the church. 
They are a sign that God is zealous for the preservation of his people and the extension of his church in this world. So I've entitled this sermon, Zeal for Zion. And it is God's zeal that first meets us in this passage. In verse 2, God says, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. And with great fervor, I am zealous for her. And so with that uh, added striking force of repetition, God affirms the divine passion that he has for his own people, his church. Uh, The Hebrew word translated fervor here in the New King James, you know I had to dig into uh, a few Hebrew words here and there. This is a word that actually means heat, and it's used to describe the heat of emotions. Right, that people may have when they are they were overcome with emotion. So amazingly, God uh, describes his zeal for his people in that terminology, in the terminology almost of human passion. But we know in divine terms, the zeal of God stands for his sovereign and eternal election with which the church always remains his very special possession. So in this time period, as the exiles returned to Jerusalem, God says in verse 2, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So a promise must have that, like that, must have just resonated in their hearts, a promise that not only were they going back to their city, but God was going back with them. And he was going to dwell with them in such a way that his presence and his blessing would be uh, perceptible among them. And then in our passage, the place where God is going to meet with and dwell with and be with his people is honored with these, these, uh, these wonderful titles, City of Truth, Mountain of the Lord of Hosts, and the Holy Mountain. Well, just these first few verses of our text really assure God's people of some very comforting and eternal truths. And the first is that he has great zeal for his people. That's something that we can take heart in today as well. God has zeal for his church and his promise of being present with us, among us. These are things that characterize the covenant relationship in Zechariah's day as well as today, this day, this day upon which we are gathering. We can take comfort in God's zeal for Zion and also his presence among us as we abide in Christ And as you and I realize these ancient promises. But what does that zeal, that divine zeal for his church look like? What does God's presence look like in the church? How do we know it? How do we sense it? Well, there are evidences of that if we know where to look and what we're looking for. How can we discern God's zeal and presence among us? Well, there are many different ways, but the prophet gives us one place to look. And that's in verses 4 and 5. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Let's pause for a moment and appreciate the flow of this text and how its various parts connect to form one complete idea. God announces his zeal and his presence among his people, that he will be with them and zealous for them. And then we're met with a picture of the evidence and the practical effect of his zeal and his presence 
among his people and you might think it's going to be a Sinai theophany, the mountains are going to shake and a voice is going to thunder from the heights. But no, what we see is a what seems like a pretty homely picture, right? Or at least an ordinary one, a modest one. Old men and old women with their canes in their hands and children running around playing. It's a, it's a normal picture. It's a very conventional picture, isn't it? It's amazing. It's an ordinary scene of domestic life. You might find uh, among us on any given day, uh, the old and the young together in fellowship. As unremarkable as this scene may appear in our passage, in this, in this text, it portrays something about the church as the object of God's zeal and God's gracious presence. First of all, this is a scene that portrays a sense of security and a sense of well-being. It portrays people, generations of people who are unafraid, who live quiet and peaceable lives because God is with them and God is zealous for them. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which is ours in Christ Jesus, that blessed peace that flows from our salvation is pictured here in our passage with an image of what we might call domestic tranquility. The old and the young there together in this scene of of corporate contentment. Now we know the exiles to whom this prophecy was originally directed, they experienced their fair share of hardship in this world for sure. And the scripture teaches us that we too will deal with hardships in this world from generation to generation. That much is true. But this scene of children playing in the streets with their grandparents uh, looking on pictures, pictures the church with the peace and the security that is her inheritance in the covenant of grace. Because of the zeal and the gracious presence of God, we can have a peaceable existence in a world in which peace is very often lacking. The Bible tells us that in Christ we have peace with God, we have peace with con- peace of conscience in ourselves, and we have peace with one another as well. And this peace is pictured in this scene from the streets of Zion. Another important component of this image is the presence, of course, of the old and the young together in the streets. The children playing and the elderly looking on with their staffs, their canes in their hands. And, you know, it's amusing to picture this scene because we have lived it many times, haven't we? Uh, at, at family gatherings, at church gatherings. Just yesterday at the picnic, the joint picnic, three congregations, uh, this scene played out right before us. Uh, the, the older folks sat and talked, and the younger children ran and played. And we are going to be part of that scene again this afternoon when we have lunch together, right? And the older folks, when I count myself in that category now that I'm a grandfather, uh, we'll, we'll sit around and talk, and the children will run and vent their energy. Um, it's an atmosphere that we're used to, right? that we see very commonly. But our text here in Zechariah 8 invites us to, to stand back and to look at that scene as an observer. Right? Take it in and look at the whole scene as an observer 
and see what it portrays about the nature of the body of Christ. This is a scene that really vividly, wonderfully portrays the intergenerational continuity within the church. Because the older saints are there, they portray the past of the church, and then the future of the church is portrayed uh, by the children. And you see three or four generations of the church in one place at one time, and it really testifies to how God has blessed the church as it moves through history one generation at a time, and we experience our own little piece of that in our own lives. As we mentioned earlier, the scripture says, Acts chapter 2, that the covenant is for you and for your children, meaning that the church will always have the blessing of seeing faith through the generations and continue to the generations. And so the true church is never going to lack older people and it's never going to lack children because in God's mercy it spans the generations and we are reminded of that in this scene from the streets of Zion. And so in this common scene with the elderly sitting around with their canes and the children playing in the streets, you know, each one of them doing what their nature tells them to do, what we find is a, a very real, even if subtle, even if, even if a homely scene, but a very real reminder that God is faithful to his covenant and that his zeal is quietly sustaining the church from generation to generation. Let's take a moment to think about the old and the young, each in turn, and what their presence tells us about the faithfulness of God toward the church. First of all, it's very striking in this passage that after God speaks of his great zeal toward his church and his return to Zion in power, that what follows on the heels of that very high and mighty language is the promise that old people, elderly people, will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. And that is to be a sign that God is zealous for Zion. Now, in the historical context of this prophecy, we know that the opportunity to grow old was not something that the returning exiles could take for granted. The church had lived through a hard time of war and exile, and many lives were cut short. But God is promising them that they will again have the opportunity to grow old and they will have peace. But the presence of an older generation in the church reveals something more than just the tides of war in the 6th century B.C. The older generation of saints that the church always has is a living reminder of God's power to sustain the faith that he gives. And as such, the elderly saints in the church are a true blessing and witness to God's goodness to his people. The elderly saints in the church embody the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. They are the living proof of that doctrine, aren't they? They certainly bring wisdom of experience to the congregation and provide an example for younger believers to follow. In Zechariah chapter 8, the old men and the old women in the streets of Zion were living proof to them that God was zealous for his people and that he was present among them. There's reason to fear that perhaps this is a forgotten point in our culture and maybe even in some places in the modern church. 
I'm sure you've noticed how the marketing strategies of some big mainstream churches uh, like to focus on young people and young families and um, the younger folks and the hip generation, you know, how to attract them on the assumption that younger members are more desirable to a church. You probably heard someone uh, lamentably say about a church at one point, oh, it's mostly older people, right? As if (laughs) that's a bad thing. Our culture as a whole has forgotten how important our elders are, how to respect that generation, and why they should be cherished. In contrast to that, the Bible tells us that older saints are to be cherished. They are an evidence to our eyes that God is zealous for his church, and it is proof that God is among us. And so this text reminds us as a church, and you as a congregation, to cherish the older saints among you, and to teach the younger folks of the church to do the same. Now, of course, alongside the older saints in this picture in Zechariah 8, we have uh, the young children playing in the streets. And they, too, are an exhibit of God's zeal and presence with his people. Now, if the older saints embody the perseverance of the church, well, then the children of Zion embody the continuance of the church and the future of the church. Covenant children embody God's promise that he will perpetuate his covenant, that the covenant is to us and to our children, and that he stands ready in every generation to give new vitality to the body of Christ, and therefore the church will always stand in this world. Now, of course, it's a great blessing to a covenant family, believing parents, whenever they uh, have a child, a great blessing to Stephen and Grace to have Micah, that's a blessing to one family, but this passage tells us what it means to you as a church family, what it means to a congregation. It means God is zealous for you. It means God is present among you. It means that the church is being given the vitality that God promised, that it will extend to the next and to the next and to the next generation. Um, The promise being to us and to our children. We see that unfold before our eyes. So Zion is blessed when it has these children. And today you have been blessed by the addition of a covenant child to your number. Now it's important to notice that in this passage before us today, the prophet pictures the children of Zion as part of Zion. And this should not surprise us one bit, because throughout the Bible, children of believers are counted as part of the church in God's eyes. As we noted earlier, Abraham was commanded to give the the sign of the covenant to infant children in his family. And from that day to this day, the children of believers continue to stand within the covenant of grace and receive the sign of the covenant. That sign has changed, but the standing of covenant children within the community, the holy community of the church, has not changed. Of course it has not. The promise is to us and to our children. Now, let's just stray for a moment from our text to talk, just say just a word about the administration of the sacrament of baptism to a covenant child. The baptism of a child, just as we witness today in the church, is not simply an, an expression of our hopes 
that the child will grow up and make a profession of faith, although that is our deepest hope and our greatest prayer for that child, for sure. But this is more than that. It is not the practice of baby dedication with a little bit of water thrown in for good measure. Scripture teaches us that baptism is a sign, a sign and a seal of the work of Christ uh, that is signified and sealed to the person who receives it. It represents the washing away of sin. Now, we do not believe, as the Roman Catholic Church does, that God works his grace immediately and mechanically through the sacrament. We do not believe that. Nor do we believe that adult baptisms are somehow more meaningful because they are sort of backed up by a profession of faith. What we're reminded of today is that baptism is a sign of God's work. It's not a sign of the will of man or the choice of man. It's a sign of what Christ has accomplished. And it is God who determines who will receive his covenant sign. It is his to give and it is his to withhold. And today we have seen God's pleasure in giving that sign to the the children of believers in the covenant community. Now, of course, you go back to the Old Testament and you see, for instance, the case of Jacob and Esau, how both of them received the sign of the covenant And yet one grew into a strong and vital saving faith and the other did not. The scriptures tell us that God had loved Jacob and rejected Esau. And this, of course, is a very important reminder to us that covenant children, when they come of age, they must embrace the faith as it is revealed to them, as they are called to embrace it. They must embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. But... The exception of Esau does not disprove the rule of Jacob. And that is the fact that God is well pleased to place his sign and rest his love on his covenant children. And it is these covenant children, these boys and girls that Zechariah pictures playing in the streets. They are not just interlopers. They are not just potential believers who are on probation. They are truly a body And part of that body, they are truly part of the body of Christ. And the sign of the covenant given to them reminds us of that. That Christ is their savior too. Now, a little more directly with our text, we come to realize now that this picture from the streets of Zion, it pictures the church in a blessed state. It pictures how the zeal of God and the presence of God will be manifest in a very real way, perhaps in a common way. You know, in a very conventional way, but in a true way nonetheless. Now, in the ancient world, we know that able-bodied young men were very important to society for, for a very good reason. They could work, provide food, they could go out and fight the enemies and so on. Young men were very important. They were the workforce. They were the soldiers. They were the ones who, in a sense, provided the muscle that an ancient culture needed to survive. And so in general terms, you could, you could gauge the, the strength of a society and a community based on that, their workforce, their fighting strength, um, and so on. And I'm sure you've noticed in the Bible, in the Old Testament, how there seems to be a propensity and a desire for sons 
right? That seems to be uh, very, very clear. And it's not as though just in a patriarchal world, uh, you know, women were devalued or little girls were devalued. That's not the case whatsoever. They were just as valued as everyone else. But it was just the, uh, the, uh, the, the certain necessities of ancient life uh, required that young men were necessary to fight, to farm, to work. But what is so interesting about our text is when the prophet pictures God's blessing on Zion, he doesn't say, you'll have lots of mighty men to do your work and to fight your battles. Instead, the promise is that Zion will be full of old men and women and young boys and girls playing in the street. In other words, the weakest members of society. This will be a sign of God's zeal and presence, which is an amazing thing. It tells us that the strength of the church is not reckoned the same way as strength is reckoned in the world. Because out in the world, a lot of times elderly people and young people are mostly seen as liabilities, right? But in the church, in the church they're seen as assets. They're a sign of God's blessing. And the point is this, the weakest members of society flourish in the church They could be forgotten in the world, but they flourish in the body of Christ and they add strength and they add witness to the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, the apostle said that God had chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And our text here in Zechariah 8 is exactly a case in point. When Zion is full of the old and the young, what society would probably consider the weakest elements. It is then that Zion is strong. It is then that she is blessed. It is then that Zion knows that God is zealous for her and she, as the body of Christ, is equipped to subdue the wise and the strong of this world with the gospel of Christ. This point also tells us something else about the nature of the church. When God says that Zion will be blessed with the old and the young, we know that Zion is a place where the weaker members are honored and the weaker members are cherished. In 1 Corinthians 12, which we heard read earlier today, Paul's talking about the members of the body of Christ, and he says this, The members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Think about that word. Let that word sink in for just a moment. Who is the weakest member of this body? It's probably Micah. And up till two weeks ago, this church got along fine without him, but now he is indispensable. Indispensable. And the apostle goes on to say, those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members we treat with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We see this very thing in our text in Zechariah 8. When God is blessing the church, It is the weakest members that flourish, that are honored. As I said, in the Old Testament, you hear a lot about 
the, the mighty men of old, the men of renown, the ones who could plow the fields at seed time and go kill the Philistines after the harvest. But when God pictures his blessing on Zion, it's the elderly, it's the children whom he chooses to honor, whom he chooses to make flourish. And so that, along with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, reminds us that the weaker members are to be honored. And when they flourish, it is a sign that God is zealous for Zion. I want to encourage you to remember that today because you as a congregation, uh, with the baptism of a covenant child today, you, you have stood up and you took a vow together, a promise that you receive this child into your fellowship, that you will pray for him and help his parents, encourage his parents as they bring him up in the Christian life. In other words, uh, you just promise to care for the weakest member. And when the church does that, when the church does that, it is a sign that the, the body is healthy. Healthy. And let's not forget the other side of that equation. Something that you, you did not take a vow to do this today, but we should vow before the Lord to do this together, that we truly do respect and honor the older saints among us, that we hear their testimony, that we see their example of life, that we show them the respect and the love that we ought to show. The church is a place where the old and the young are honored and should be. Well, in regard to covenant children, there's one other point worth making considering in this text, and, and that is this fact. With the addition of covenant children to a church, and you're getting more and more, you don't have a lot, but you have a good number, and Lord willing, you will have more in the future. That brings the challenge, of course, of raising them in the fear of the Lord, but it also brings another challenge that every single church goes through, and that is the challenge of, in a, in, in a sense, keeping order and maintaining a, a worshipful atmosphere when the church gathers together. Because, as we both know, children always bring a little measure of commotion to any situation. There's one reason that I bring this up, and it comes from our text. Our text captures this point with a use of a Hebrew verb in verse 5, it is the verb sahak in Hebrew, and it's, it's translated in the New King James as play, playing in the streets. But the verb actually means to laugh, to laugh out loud. Okay, And so verse 5 could very well be translated, boys and girls laughing in the streets. And so our text reminds us, as if we need a reminder, Right? That children will sometimes make sound. <laughs> Even the best trained children from the best Christian families, all of them have a certain energy and liveliness to their nature. And it is easy. It is easy for adults to sometimes become impatient with this fact, isn't it? Um, just at that moment, you're listening to the sermon and the key point comes and suddenly Micah starts to scream over here and you just can't hear it. You missed it, right? Or, uh, you know, the kids laughing and playing and so on. Some, sometimes that, um, that, that poses a difficulty, right, in some places with some people. Now, it goes without saying that covenant children should be taught by their parents to act with propriety and with respect and 
should learn to worship in reverence. That's one of the greatest things you can do for your children is to teach them to worship with reverence. But when Zechariah pictures these covenant children, he pictures them according to their nature, doing what their nature tells them to do, laughing and playing. Right? So the point here is that children are children. Right? No matter how well they are trained, it is forgivable if they make their presence known. And so when you hear that sound of children uh, resounding in this room or in the lunchroom or even during the sermon when you hear a baby cry, remember, remind yourself that that is the sound of a blessing. To hear them is far better than to not hear them because to hear them means that you have them. And that is God's blessing. Well, there's one last point to be observed here about this scene from the streets of Zion. And that is this, any biblical prophecy must first be understood primarily in terms of its original context. And as we said, the original context of this prophecy is the late uh, 6th century BC, just after the exiles returned to the land. Now verse 6 certainly anchors this text to its immediate historical context. Look with me at verse 6. And again, New King James says, and again, in, in regard to this picture of the old and the young in the streets, it is, if, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord? Now that word marvelous, it, it has to do with miracles, but in the sense of something being unbelievable. Okay, so I, I think the sense of it is impossible. Marvelous indeed, but impossible. The sense of it is, if this is impossible in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be impossible in my eyes, says the Lord? So the point is, this is a big promise. And these people look around them and think, little children and old people again in our streets? How is that possible? It's not possible. They probably, you know, doubted that promise. And so when this prophecy was given, it was not yet fulfilled. The people didn't quite see the promise come to pass, not yet. Now, we do know that Jerusalem was repopulated. It was rebuilt to some extent. The ensuing history of the nation uh, was not great. Um, Jerusalem was thereafter a modest-sized city that was under the dominance of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans didn't exactly have the population or the prosperity that this text seems to describe. So we may justifiably think about this prophecy as, as we said, something that is pictured about the church through this age, that there will always be those generations in the continuity of the church, and the old and the young will be a blessing to the church. But we can also think about this prophecy in terms of an ultimate intention, Right, what does it really, what does it ultimately picture? Right, our experience when we have fellowship lunches and things like that, but is there something bigger? Does this text give us something to still look forward to? Well, remember back in verse 3, before we came onto this scene from the streets of Zion, the text spoke of God's powerful return to Zion to dwell in the midst of his people, and that event 
would be transformative, right? That the, the, the place itself, the city itself, would be called by these new titles, the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. It's, it's quite an overdrawn picture to just describe the return from the exile. And in verse 3, I think we do see more than just a hint of the consummation. When God returns in a great display of power and Zion's transformation is pictured with the, the bestowal of these honorable names signifying her transformation, right? City of truth, mountain of the Lord of hosts. And what's even more convincing to me is verses 7 and 8. God says, I will save my people from the land of the east, from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they'll dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, the exiles were in the west in Babylon. Nobody's east. <laughs> if you go east of Israel, you're in the ocean. And it doesn't say land of the east and land of the west. It says from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun in Hebrew. The land where the sun rises and the land where the sun sets. And I will bring back all of my people from the going down of the sun to the rising of the sun. What is pictured is not just the return from the Babylonian exile. Something bigger is being pictured, right? It seems hard to deny that this prophecy uses that historical event, the return from the exile, to picture something much greater, the ultimate and final ingathering of the church and God's full and final glorious presence with his people. But it uses that historical setting to then look into the future to picture an even greater return from an exile, the exile that we are all in in this world. Someday we will be repatriated right together into the heavenly Jerusalem. And so ultimately, this prophecy does picture the church in the state of glory. But then when you go back to verses 4 and 5 and think, how is that a picture of the state of glory? It's so common. It's so normal. It's so conventional. Right? Old men and old women sitting in the streets. That's a picture of glory. Well, remember this. A couple of centuries before Zechariah, the prophet Isaiah described the state of glory with similar kinds of images. A lion laying down with the lamb. A child playing next to a viper's hole and not being bitten. These are simply pictures, images of safety and peace that are cast in earthly terms. And I think we can see Zechariah chapter 8 in, in the very same way. It does not mean that people are going to grow old in the state of glory. It doesn't mean that people are going to be born in the state of glory. But what do the old and the young represent in the church? The old and the young portray the blessings of long life and new life. And in the state of glory, those blessings will be realized in their fullest. By faith in Christ, we have long life, eternally long life. And by faith in Christ, we have, as Psalm 103 puts it, which we sang, our youth renewed like the eagles. So when you see the old saint sitting in church or the young covenant child running and screaming, uh, that represents blessings that we will experience in the fullest, long life that doesn't end, and renewed vigor that doesn't end. But we see glimpses, and when we taste the promise from generation to generation, 
until finally we taste that promise in its fullness. Long life and new life are ours in Christ. They are ours now and forever. And these blessings upon the true church are represented in our text today by this scene from the streets of Zion. So, this scene of a peaceable existence and intergenerational unity that we have in our text gives us a glimpse, gives us a little glimpse of the peace and the unity that we will have in glory. And it is amazing that the Lord would give us this kind of picture of the state of glory. As I said, it's, it's very conventional, isn't it? And it tells us that the state of glory, even though the presence and the glory of God will be our greatest joy, that will not simply be a one-dimensional experience. We'll, we'll still experience community. We'll still experience long life and new life together for eternity on the streets of Zion, right? Pictured as it is here, that will be our experience. So, in conclusion... In your scenes of fellowship, in your own scenes from the streets of Zion, when we have lunch today or whenever, the older folks sitting around talking, and younger kids running and playing, crying, laughing, be an observer. Watch that scene. Take in that scene and think about it. And when you see in the church that scene, the elderly saints and the young covenant children together, we are reminded that the true church possesses the blessings of long life and new life in the ultimate sense and that here and now today it is our responsibility to cherish and to honor the weaker members because they are our true strength. And so as the covenant child has been baptized in your midst this morning and as we go about the day in our fellowship we may see in all of these events, we may see a true assurance that God is still zealous for his people and still present among us and praise him that he is. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word, which is truth. We pray that it would make its way into our hearts and transform our lives this day. And we thank you for the blessing of being here to worship you we ask that you would receive our worship this day for your glory and that you would bless your people now with growth in the faith, strengthen us to serve you in life. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.